The year was 1897 and sailor Eugene Fellini was working on the deck of a ship somewhere in the South Pacific. Eugene was 22 years old. He was a restless young man who had taken a job at sea as a way to break away from the life his parents were trying to force him into. Eugene had been hired by the captain of a trading ship making the rounds between New Zealand, Australia and the Pacific Islands. On the way up to the islands, the hold was filled with coal, wool, shale oil and kerosene. On its way back, it was stuffed to the brim with sugar from Fiji, sandalwood from Hawaii, mother of pearl, sea skins, tortoise shells, whale oil, whale bone, pineapples, bananas and coffee. By all accounts, Eugene loved the sailor's life. One of his favourite things to do on the ship was to climb up the masts to unfurl the sails, with the wind blowing a gale and the deck beneath him heaving in the high seas. Life on board was physically tough, but Eugene was as strong as the next man, and at the end of each day, he joined his fellow sailors to scold his daily allocation of booze and swap crude jokes about the fun that was going to be had in the next port. Physically, Eugene was a small man, fine-boned and handsome. He had a rough and ready reputation for drinking like a fish, swearing like a trooper and pulling his weight no matter how tough the job at hand. He was the kind of guy the rest of the crew knew they could always count on. The only thing that his mates at sea found strange about Eugene was his extreme shyness around nudity. While the rest of the crew would unselfconsciously strip off in their shared quarters to wash and dress, Eugene always waited until it was completely dark and everyone else had bunked down. The reason for Eugene's unusual modesty was that he had a secret, a big secret, and no records exist to say what exactly went wrong for him on this particular voyage in 1897. But somehow the secret he'd successfully kept for 18 months when he first joined the crew of the sailing ship was discovered. The secret was that Eugene Fellini was a woman and once it was out, the news was all bad. The captain and crew reacted with a combination of revulsion and fury that they'd been duped for so long. And so it was that Eugene Fellini went from being a respected, hard-working and well-liked crew member on board a South Sea sailing ship to the lowest of the low, the ship's prisoner. A few weeks later, the ship pulled into the Australian port of Newcastle and Eugene, whose real name was Eugenia, was pulled from her holding cell in the bowels of the vessel and dumped like a bag of garbage on the dock. She was alone and penniless and knew no one in Australia. And there was something else too. During her weeks locked up in the ship, she'd been repeatedly raped by the captain. Now she was pregnant. Hi everyone, so I've been running around like a mad thing over the past month doing interviews for more episodes of The Lip and I'm really excited about some of the incredible stories that are coming up. What that does mean though is that I haven't had time to put together an interview based story this month. But I do still have, I think, one of the most remarkable true stories I've ever encountered. When I'm not podcasting, one of my day jobs is writing a books column and I came across this story last year when I interviewed an author called Pip Smith. Pip has written a really great novel called Half Wild, which is a fictional imagining of the life of a real person. That person grew up in New Zealand in the 1800s and is one of the first documented transgender cases in this part of the world. It's a story of immense courage, tragedy, betrayal and murder. Above all, it's a reminder that marginalising people and forcing them into boxes they'll never fit into can have heartbreaking consequences. Pip told me that she herself came across this story when she went to an art exhibition of old police photographs in Sydney, Australia. 
In the 1800s, photography was brand new, and police photos back then were nothing like the stock standard mugshots of today. They were surprisingly arty. Wandering around the gallery, looking at these astonishing photographs, Pip was drawn to a portrait of one man in particular, who had the saddest eyes she'd ever seen. She dug a little deeper into his story, and before long she was so totally consumed that she turned it into a novel. Because this is a podcast of extraordinary true stories, what follows here is, as much as I can manage, a true account of the extraordinary life of Eugenia Fellini, also known as Eugene Fellini, also known as Harry Crawford, also known as Jean Ford. Just a warning before we go any further, this episode contains explicit descriptions of sex and grisly depictions of a murder scene. Eugenia Fellini was born in Italy in 1875. She was the first-born child of Luigi and Isola Fellini, and when Eugenia was two, Luigi and Isola decided they needed a fresh start, so they packed up their belongings and moved to the other side of the world, New Zealand. They settled in Wellington and had 16 more children. From as long as she could remember, Eugenia felt different to other people. Her Italian family stood out like sore thumbs in a community that was almost entirely Anglo-Saxon. Luigi and Isola insisted that their native tongue be spoken in their home and they raised their children, ten boys and seven girls, very much in their traditional Italian ways. Eugenia was often bullied at school for being so markedly different from the rest of the kids, but it wasn't just her Italian heritage that marked her out as different. Eugenia was a dedicated tomboy. As the eldest daughter, she was expected to take the role of a secondary mother in the Fellini household, cooking, cleaning and caring for her younger siblings. But she showed zero interest in any of it, just like she had no interest in dolls or pretty dresses. Instead, Eugenia loved to wear boys' clothes and, whenever she could, she went outside dressed as a boy to play rough-and-tumble with her brothers and the boys from the neighbourhood. Her strange ways drove her traditional parents mad, particularly her father, who couldn't understand why his attractive eldest daughter was so difficult. Between the taunts and jibes she was subjected to at school and the difficulties with her parents at home, Eugenia could have forced herself to become something she wasn't for the sake of a bit of peace and quiet. But instead, she became creative at finding ways to be herself. One of the things she enjoyed the most in life was working with horses, and it just so happened her grandmother's husband, a man called Mr Booty, owned some stables and Eugenia frequently skipped school to go and work with the horses. She missed so much school that she never learned to read or write, and it was something that plagued her for the rest of her life. But Eugenia found not only happiness working at the stables, she also became an excellent rider. She often boasted that she was better in the saddle than most men. Life at home, however, remained strained, and when she was 15, Eugenia, who was often called Nina by her family, ran away. Her parents were so worried that two days after she disappeared, on September the 16th, 1891, they placed a notice in the Evening Post newspaper which read, Missing friend, Nina Fellini, aged 15, left her home in Newtown early on the morning of Monday the 14th and has not been heard of. Information is anxiously sought by her father and mother. Eugenia eventually did return home, but it wasn't the start of a new life of conformity. She was considered an exotic beauty, and even though she cut her hair scandalously short for the day and age, an endless parade of eligible young men came courting. 
Her father was outraged when Eugenia rebuffed each and every advance. Don't want no court and suitors knocking at my door. Don't want no Romeo to make me wonder where for, where for, where for, where for, where for. So in 1894, when Eugenia was 19, Luigi forced her to marry an Italian man called Brasselli Innocente. Her new husband immediately took Eugenia 650 kilometres north to Auckland, where the new bride discovered that her husband already had a wife and children. Relieved that she'd found a way out of the marriage, she immediately turned tail and returned to Wellington. It was at this point that Eugenia decided to take full control of her destiny. It would be more than a hundred years before the term gender dysphoria would be coined, but Eugenia didn't need it to understand the truth about herself. She knew that she should have been born a man, and she only felt like herself when she dressed and acted like a man. In the time she was living in, there was, of course, no understanding of who she was or what she was going through. People who crossed the gender divide were few and far between, and those who did were treated with ridicule, scorn and contempt. Back in Wellington, she avoided her family, who she felt had betrayed her by forcing her into a marriage she didn't want. And it wasn't long before they, in turn, wanted nothing to do with her. She began dressing like a man full-time, concealing her breasts by wrapping them tightly every day with bandages. She took up cigarette smoking, changed her name from Eugenia to Eugene, and found work as a labourer at a drainpipe factory. There was just one thing Eugene didn't account for with his new identity, however. Wellington was just a small city. One day, a family friend dropped into the drainpipe factory and recognised Eugene at work on the factory floor. He was immediately sacked. With not enough income to support himself, Eugene turned to the Salvation Army for help and was given a place to stay in one of its homes for marginalised people. He was seen not long after by one of his relatives, playing the tambourine in a Salvation Army brass band. Eugene continued to look for work as a man, but each time he landed a job, someone would blow his cover and he would find himself out of work once again. At one point, he travelled north to Masterton, hoping to find a job in some stables, but was instead arrested for impersonating a man and was discharged without conviction by the magistrate on the condition that he returned to Wellington immediately. Soon after that incident in 1896, when he was 21, Eugene decided enough was enough. It was time to leave the fishbowl that was Wellington. He landed a job on a trading ship and sailed away from New Zealand without telling a soul. Say goodbye to the city I think it's time to get away I just can't shake this feeling I guess I just don't want to stay After Eugenia's true identity was discovered on board the ship and she was dumped in the port of Newcastle, penniless and pregnant, she had no choice but to revert to her former female self. Eugenia knew no one in Australia, but she remembered her parents talking about an Italian couple who lived in Sydney with the surname DeAngelis. Her parents had spoken about how kind they were and how sad it was that they'd never had children of their own. Eugenia also remembered her parents saying that Mr and Mrs DeAngelis were very comfortably off. Hoping that they would help her through her predicament, Eugenia found a way to travel the 120 kilometres south from Newcastle to Sydney. When she knocked on the door of the DeAngelis mansion in upmarket Double Bay, the DeAngelises knew exactly who Eugenia was. News of other Italian families in that part of the world travelled fast and they'd heard the full story from Eugenia's tomboyish ways as a young girl right through to her arrest for impersonating a man and her mysterious disappearance from Wellington 18 months earlier. 
Living up to their reputation, the DeAngelis's happily took Eugenia in. While she waited out her pregnancy, she worked in a laundry that the couple owned, and for a while, at least, she wondered if motherhood might make her feel like a woman. But after her daughter Josephine was born on September the 19th, 1898, Eugenia realised that motherhood had had no effect on her whatsoever. She was thrilled to get the baby out of her belly and showed no interest in the child she had just given birth to. In fact, she could barely bring herself to look at it. At one point, Mrs. DeAngelis insisted she hold her baby, but when Josephine snuffled into Eugenia's breasts, trying to feed, Eugenia held her at arm's length and asked Mrs. DeAngelis to take her away. Eventually, Mrs. DeAngelis hatched a plan that suited them both perfectly. Eugenia could leave Josephine with her to raise in a loving and financially stable household, and Eugenia could visit whenever she liked. Eugenia accepted the arrangement, and within days she left the DeAngelis' home and adopted a whole new identity and backstory. She was no longer Eugenia Fellini, or even Eugene Fellini. She was now a man called Harry Leo Crawford from Scotland. It's thought that Eugenia chose to invent a Scots background to avoid the racism she had so often encountered due to her Italian heritage. In addition to that, during her time working on ships, she'd known a lot of Scotsmen, and she found mimicking their accent easy. Harry Leo Crawford was by all accounts a well-groomed gentleman. He stayed living in Sydney and did a number of jobs, mostly labouring in factories and hotels. He soon gained a reputation as a man's man, with a predilection for drinking, cussing and talking about women. He never stayed too long in one place, instead he moved around the inner city suburbs, living in cheap boarding houses, and soon had a large circle of male friends and female admirers, not one of whom suspected he was anything other than who he claimed to be. He would occasionally visit the DeAngelises and his daughter Josephine. Mr and Mrs DeAngelis kept Harry's true identity a secret from everyone who knew them, including Josephine. For years, the girl thought the DeAngelises were her real grandparents, and she was sometimes confused by the visits from this strange man, Harry Crawford. When Josephine was seven, Mrs DeAngelis thought she was old enough to know the truth, that Harry Crawford was actually her mother. It was a lot for the young girl to take in, but Josephine intuitively sensed that it was a shameful secret that must be told to no one. Harry's infrequent visits to the DeAngelises and Josephine were always uncomfortable reminders of his past. But otherwise, Harry fitted seamlessly into life as a single man in Sydney. His life revolved around his labouring jobs, finding digs in various boarding houses and endless drinking sessions with his mates. He was just five foot four, but with his fine-featured good looks, he attracted a lot of female attention. He always flirted back, but didn't take things much further, fearing that the risk of being exposed was too great. On one occasion, though, Harry's need for love and intimacy overpowered his fears of being exposed, and when the next woman made overtures, he accepted. He was terrified, but it turned out the woman was almost as inexperienced in the ways of lovemaking as he was, and she didn't question Harry's insistence that they just hug and kiss. The experience was a game-changer for Harry, who for years had agonised between his yearnings for physical intimacy and his fears of being caught. He decided that the next time he had the opportunity to make love to a woman, he would have the tools on hand to give her the kind of satisfaction she expected. In a shed, at the back of the boarding house he was staying in, he made a dildo from a piece of hardwood which he then covered in a sheath of top-quality leather. He also attached leather straps to the base of the device. Before he used his handcrafted manhood on a woman, he gave a lot of thought to the business of not being discovered. His first move was to ensure the woman had had a lot to drink. He also made sure that there was no physical intimacy until they were both in complete darkness. 
He insisted that the woman did not touch him either on his chest area, which as usual was tightly bandaged, or his groin area. Once the woman was naked in bed and the room was pitch black, he went to the bathroom, taking with him the cloth bag that held his handmade dildo. He slathered it in petroleum jelly and strapped it on. Harry then climbed back into bed and made love to the woman. Once the act was over, he quickly went to the bathroom where he removed the device and put it back in its cloth bag. He was gratified to find that his partner had not only enjoyed the encounter, but had thought him to be something of a stallion in the sack. He slept with several more women in quick succession using the same method and was thrilled to find that none of them had any complaints. On the contrary, in fact, most of them complimented him on his ability to sustain himself through long sessions of lovemaking. While the exchanges can't have given Harry much in the way of sexual gratification, it did give him the intimacy he was craving, and also the sense that he was now affirmed as a man, in every sense. The knowledge that he could pass as a man, even in bed, led Harry to daydream about the possibility of having a deeper relationship with a woman. He let himself dream about having a wife, someone who accepted him for who he was without fear of shame or rejection. By 1910, he was 35 years old and had been living as Harry Crawford for 14 years. He decided that if he was going to increase his prospects of finding a wife, he needed to find new, more respectable work and start moving in more upwardly mobile circles. A doctor in the upmarket suburb of Warunga was looking for a coachman and yardman, and to Harry's delight, he got the job. His responsibilities included looking after the doctor's horses, carriage and sulky, and also driving the doctor on his medical rounds. Soon after starting the job, Harry became aware of the doctor's live-in housekeeper, a handsome 32-year-old woman called Annie Burkett. In the moment that I noticed you, you seemed like the compass in a spinning Annie was a widow with a nine-year-old son who was also called Harry. At five foot seven, Annie was three inches taller than Harry, but that didn't put him off, and she was flattered by Harry's attentions, but her main focus was giving her son the most secure future possible. She wasn't keen on throwing caution to the wind with a charming stranger who she'd heard had a reputation as a hard drinker. Still, Harry persevered. He assured her his drinking days were over and he took Annie and Harry Jr. on outings to the circus and on picnics at various nature spots around Sydney. During one of their picnics, Harry Jr. went exploring and Harry Sr. took the opportunity to lean in, kiss Annie on the lips and tell her that he loved her. She blushed, but she didn't rebuff his advances. Three years after their first meeting, Annie agreed to marry him. Harry was overjoyed at the prospect of a new life with Annie and Harry Jr. During her time working for the doctor, Annie had also managed to save a reasonably large nest egg, so she and Harry decided that she would give up working for the doctor and buy a soft drink and sweet store in Balmain that they'd seen advertised for sale for £75. There was even a flat above the shop that they could move into once they were man and wife. As their wedding date drew closer, Harry realised that there was no way he could tell Annie his deepest secret without the risk of losing her and the future they'd planned out together. Instead of risking it all, he vowed to keep it a secret forever. On February the 19th, 1913, Harry Leo Crawford married Annie Burkett in the Methodist Parsonage in Balmain, Sydney. Despite the fact he actually had two living parents and 16 siblings across the Tasman and Wellington, Harry told Annie that both his parents were dead and he had no other family to speak of. Annie was also unaware that Harry had a daughter and likewise, Harry's daughter Josephine was unaware that Harry had tied the knot. 
One person who was at the wedding was Annie's sister, Lily Nugent. But Lily had already made it clear to Annie that she didn't approve of the marriage because she didn't approve of Harry's reputation for hard drinking. Annie steadfastly refused to listen to Lily's misgivings and it drove a wedge between the two sisters. After the wedding, they hardly saw each other. Once they'd made things official, Harry and Annie settled in to a run-of-the-mill suburban life. Neighbours often saw them walking around, hand in hand. In his book Eugenia, author Mark Tedeschi says that behind closed doors, Annie was surprised that Harry insisted on such a high level of privacy. He was so shy about nudity that she had never once caught a glimpse of him naked or even with his shirt off. When she broached the subject with him, Harry brushed it off as something that had become important to him after years of living cheek by jowl with other men on ships. Tedeschi says Annie also noticed that unlike her relationship between the sheets with her first husband, her sexual relationship with Harry was somewhat pedestrian. There was only one position that was acceptable to him, with Harry on top and no skin-to-skin contact above the waist. If she ever moved her hands below chest level, Harry would push them away. Furthermore, Harry always insisted on visiting the bathroom before making love. In the early 1900s though, frank discussions about sexual desires and habits was not the norm, even between married couples. Annie never challenged Harry about his highly prescriptive peccadilloes. Instead, she mused to herself that in bed at least, he was just deeply old-fashioned and fearful of losing sexual control. Meanwhile, Harry had found the perfect place to hide his leather-clad love implement where his wife was unlikely to encounter it by accident. In the corner of their bedroom, he had a portmanteau that contained his best suit and other good quality clothing that was only worn on special occasions. He hid the cloth bag that contained the dildo in the bottom of the portmanteau, only bringing it out and hiding it in the bathroom before he planned to make love to his wife. Annie never did find Harry's lovemaking apparatus, and not once did she ever suspect that he was anything other than a fully equipped man. But there were other things that happened during their marriage that she found perplexing. In his book Eugenia, Mark Tedeschi says that once, in the toilet, she lifted the lid to find a menstrual pad covered in blood. She knew it wasn't hers, so she asked Harry if he knew anything about it. He told her that he had hurt his private parts at work and had been given the pad by the nurse to mop up the blood. He refused to let Annie inspect his private parts to make sure the injury was healing properly. Another time, Annie walked into the bathroom to find Harry wrapping a long bandage around his chest. He quickly grabbed his clothing and held it up in front of himself. He explained that he'd fallen over at work and broken a rib, and refused to let Annie take a closer look so she could make sure, once again, that everything was okay. Annie was confused and upset by her husband's unwillingness to let her see his body, but ultimately, she continued to put it down to the way he was raised. She was less understanding when Harry's daughter Josephine arrived on the scene. In 1913, Mr DeAngelis upped sticks and moved back to Italy, and the following year, Mrs DeAngelis suddenly died. From papers found in the house, it looked like Mrs. DeAngelis was intending to change her will to leave Josephine comfortably off, but the older woman hadn't gotten around to signing it, so Josephine was alone and penniless. Realising he had to step up to the mark and make good to the daughter he'd abandoned 16 years earlier, Harry made a deal with Josephine. He would bring her to live with him if Josephine promised never to tell his secret. Josephine vowed she wouldn't tell, and soon after, Harry came home to Annie with some surprising news. He told his wife he'd just discovered that a woman he'd had intimate relations with many years earlier had died, and that he'd also learned that her newly orphaned teenage daughter was his. Annie was shocked and resentful that she was suddenly obliged to take on Harry's love child that up until now she didn't even know existed. 
To make things worse, Josephine was a headstrong and rebellious teen, and as soon as she moved in, Annie began to worry that she would be a bad influence on Harry Jr. Arguments in the house began to flare up, which led Harry to start drinking heavily once again. To make matters worse, Annie's confectionery store wasn't making the money she thought it would, and she ended up having to sell for a fraction of the price she bought it for. The family of four had to move out of their flat above the shop and rent a house. As Josephine became more familiar with people in her new neighbourhood, she was often asked questions about her mother. Sometimes she shrugged the questions off, but other times she made up stories about who her mother was and why she wasn't around anymore. It didn't take long for the neighbours to compare the conflicting stories that Josephine had told them. One day, after a fierce argument with Harry, Josephine went to visit a friend in the neighbourhood. Her friend's mother was one of the neighbours who asked endless questions about Josephine's mother, and on this day the woman piped up again, asking Josephine where her mother was, and why she wasn't around. Still angry after her fight with Harry, Josephine pointed to her house and snapped something along the lines of, See our house? My mother lives there. She dresses as a man and is married to Annie Burkett. Dark is coming, dark is there. See it shimmer into thin air. Sleepless evening. As soon as the words were out of her mouth, Josephine probably wished she could stuff them back in. But it was too late. The woman, for once, was speechless. Josephine made her excuses and went home, hoping that her friend's mother would ignore what she said as yet another one of her silly stories. Instead, the woman considered carefully what Josephine had blurted out and realised that it could easily be the truth. Harry's stature was small, like a woman's. His voice wasn't high, but it wasn't particularly deep either. After a few weeks of mulling it over, she decided it was her moral duty to speak to Annie Burkett about it. One day, the woman dropped in for a visit when she knew Annie was at home alone. After some preliminary chit-chat, she got down to brass tacks, telling Annie what Josephine told her, that Harry was in fact a woman, and that he was in fact Josephine's biological mother. Annie laughed off what the woman told her, but after the woman was gone, Annie couldn't help but examine Harry and his odd behaviour in this possible new light. It would explain why Harry had never once let her see his body or touch him intimately. It explained why Harry was so cagey when she asked for more information about Josephine's mother. It explained why he always insisted on visiting the bathroom before and after sex. And it explained the time when she found a used sanitary pad in the bathroom and the time she walked in on him, bandaging his chest. It explained everything. Annie kept her thoughts to herself until late that evening, when she and Harry were alone in their bedroom. Then she told him what the neighbour had told her, and demanded to see evidence of his manhood. Harry refused point blank, and so Annie changed tack and said that if he was too shy to show her, they could both visit a doctor the next day, so Harry's true gender could be confirmed by a medical professional. Harry refused again, and Annie took this as confirmation that what Josephine had told the neighbour was the truth. From then on, she slept in the spare bed in Harry Jr.'s room. For several months, Harry and Annie's relationship hung in the balance, and during this time, Josephine moved out. At one point, Annie tried to rekindle her relationship with her sister. She visited Lily with Harry in tow, but Harry was so worried that Annie might tell his secret to Lily that he stuck to his wife like glue. In the end, Annie managed to grab just a few seconds alone with her sister in the bathroom, where she was able to whisper, I found out Harry's not a man, before Harry began knocking on the bathroom door. Ultimately, it seemed, that Annie was looking desperately for a way to exit the marriage without revealing the truth about Harry, and unleashing a scandal that would stick like mud to both of them. Harry, meanwhile, had by this time been living as Harry Leo Crawford for years, 
it was likely he couldn't imagine being anyone else and was pinning his hopes on Annie truly accepting him for who he was and staying in their marriage. In the end, neither of them got what they wanted. On October 1st, 1917, the workers of Sydney were given a public holiday to celebrate the eight-hour workday. Harry not only had that Monday public holiday off, but also the Friday preceding it, a four-day weekend. As it turned out, Harry Jr., who was now 14, was going to be away for those four days. While the events that are described next are by no means certain, it has been suggested that Annie decided the four-day break was the perfect time to broach the subject of divorce, as it would give them both time and space to hash things out without upsetting Harry Jr. She suggested to her husband that they go on a picnic on the Friday, and Harry, thinking it was a sign that Annie's feelings towards him had thawed, happily agreed. He suggested the Lane Cove River Park as the perfect spot. The place had special significance for Harry, as it was the exact spot where he had first kissed Annie and told her he loved her. Getting to Lane Cove River Park involved taking a ferry to a place called Fig Tree Wharf, where they then had to take another boat to a place called Stringy Bark Creek. Getting to the park then involved taking a track through the mangroves, and then inland up a narrow trail to a small flat clearing amid the eucalyptus trees. It was a secluded spot that was perfect for a picnic. As Friday, September the 28th of October dawned, both Harry and Annie were most likely looking forward to their picnic, Annie because at last she was starting the process of extricating herself from her disastrous marriage, and Harry because he thought it was going to be the beginning of the rest of their lives together. No one knows exactly what happened next, but only one person left the picnic spot at Lane Cove River Park alive. Later that evening, a woman's body, placed in a makeshift fireplace, lay smouldering in the clearing. Heat from the fire had burned off her hair, clothing and skin. The charred body was Annie Burkett's, not that anyone who stumbled across it or saw it in a morgue would be able to confirm it. Any recognisable features of Annie had been destroyed by the flames. An enamel cup and an old whiskey flagon sat next to the corpse. The corpse's lower legs had not come in contact with the flames and the shoes were still on her feet. They were run-of-the-mill footwear for women of the time, although anyone who looked closely would notice that they had recently been patched. A brooch once attached to the woman's coat was in the pit of the fire, and a diamond engagement ring was still on her left hand. Off to the side, hidden in the grass, lay a kidney-shaped greenstone pendant. Back home that evening, Harry Crawford drank a lot of whisky. The next day, still drinking heavily, he started packing up all of his and Annie's belongings, deciding as he went which things he would keep and which things he would sell on the second-hand market. When Harry Jr. arrived home four days after the picnic and asked where Annie was, Harry Sr. told him, we had a tiff, and went on to say that Annie had gone off to stay with an old friend in North Sydney. Harry Jr. accepted the explanation, and as the days rolled by, Harry began to get rid of Annie's things, offloading them on friends and neighbours, and telling them that Annie had done a bunk and run off. His stories, however, were never consistent, and neighbours began to compare the wildly different stories Harry was slinging around about his missing wife. But despite Annie's mysterious vanishing, no one connected the reports in the newspapers about an unidentified female corpse in Lane Cove River Park as having anything to do with the missing mother of one. 
It was five days after Annie's death on Tuesday, October the 2nd, 1917, that a boy roaming around the Lane Cove River Park area discovered a charred human body in the picnic clearing. There were few clues as to what had happened, except the whiskey flagon and enamel cup that suggested to them that the woman had fallen asleep next to a fire she'd lit and had burned to death in a drunken stupor. On October the 16th, more than two weeks after Annie's death, the Evening News published a photograph of the shoes found on the corpse. In the report, the police said the shoes had been recently patched and called for the person who did the repairs to come forward. A coroner's report six days after that was inconclusive about whether the unidentified woman had died due to an act of violence or whether she'd died accidentally. But given that the police had no way of identifying the body, the result was the same. Annie Burkett was buried in an unmarked grave at Rookwood Cemetery in Western Sydney in a section set aside for paupers. The items that had been salvaged from the scene of her death were placed in storage at the Chatswood Police Station in case any new information came to light. Meanwhile, Harry had told so many people so many different stories about where Annie had gone and why she'd left that he could no longer keep track of what he'd said to whom. He told one person that Annie had run off with a plumber from Balmain. To others, he invented other men. He told his landlady that he and Annie had had an argument and, quote, I gave her a crack on the head and she cleared out. To someone else, he said that Annie had been back, briefly, to claim her half of the money from the furniture he'd sold, and then she'd gone off again. He moved himself and Harry Jr. out of the house they'd shared with Annie and into a lodging house in Woolloomooloo. He briefly toyed with the idea of killing himself and Harry Jr. too, perhaps so he wouldn't have to face life without anyone to look after him. It was while Harry and Harry Jr. were living in their new digs at Woolloomooloo that Harry Sr. saw the photograph in the evening newspaper of Annie's shoes. Because he couldn't read, Harry asked Harry Jr. to read the report to him out loud. It described the finding of a charred female body at Lane Cove River Park and said that one of the only clues about who she was was the pair of shoes that had been recently repaired. Despite reading the report out to his stepfather and the fact the mystery corpse had been found around the same time as his own mother had disappeared, Harry Jr. didn't make the link. Instead, he continued to accept Harry Sr.'s explanations that his mother had simply taken off. Even Annie's sister, Lily Nugent, wasn't alerted to her sister's mysterious disappearance because contact between the two women had been sporadic since Annie had married Harry Crawford. In fact, no one, not Harry Jr., not Lily, and not any of the neighbours who had been told such wildly different stories about what had happened to Annie, reported her as missing to the police. When it became obvious that no one had linked Annie's disappearance to the mystery corpse, Harry started to get his life back on course. His first decision involved Harry Jr. He had no desire to suddenly become a full-time parent, and so he took a similar approach to how he dealt with Josephine's arrival almost 20 years earlier. He took Harry Jr. to an elderly Italian woman called Mrs. Bombelli, whom he'd known for many years. Mrs. Bombelli was tuned into the Italian grapevine, and so, like Mrs. D'Angeli years earlier, Mrs. Bombelli knew that Harry Crawford was really a woman called Eugenia Fellini. Nevertheless, she readily agreed to take young Harry Jr. in, and Harry Sr. decided he would just have to trust that Mrs. Bombelli was discreet enough to not tell Harry Jr. his well-kept secret. 
Harry Jr., for his part, was more than happy to find himself in a kind and loving home again, instead of knocking around with his stepfather, who he'd never particularly liked. Once Harry Leo Crawford was free of his stepson, he resumed the same lifestyle he'd lived before he met Annie Burkett. He moved from boarding house to boarding house, from labouring job to labouring job, drinking heavily, and with his secrets intact. Then, after two years of living the life of a single man, the unthinkable happened once again to Harry Crawford. He fell in love for a second time. Lizzie Allison was 50 years old and she worked in the office of a hotel where Harry had a job as a man Friday. She was six years older than Harry, who was 44 by then, but the age difference didn't seem to matter. Lizzie was a young 50 and was warm and kind. Harry found himself enjoying her company, and after a short and giddy romance, the pair tied the knot on September the 29th, 1919. On their wedding certificate, Harry stated it was his first marriage, and he made no mention of his daughter, Josephine, who was by now living independently. After their wedding, Harry and Lizzie moved in together, and Harry once again had a use for his homemade implement, which he still kept in a cloth bag in the bottom of his portmanteau. Because, unlike Annie Burkett, Lizzie had been unmarried her whole life, he counted on the fact that she would be sexually inexperienced and that she would not think that his strange rituals around sex and modesty were anything unusual. He was right. Lizzie did not question Harry's insistence on wearing his undershirt during their lovemaking sessions. The shirt covered the bandages he always used to strap down his breasts. Neither did she mind his requests to keep her hands away from his nether regions. She appeared to enjoy their lovemaking sessions immensely. Life appeared to be looking up for Harry Crawford. But fear that he might be caught out was always present, and not long after their wedding, danger arrived in the form of Harry Jr. Now aged 17, Harry Jr. walked into the hotel where Harry Sr. was working, and even though the two had never particularly got along, Harry Jr. suggested that they catch up for a drink after work. Harry Sr. had to think on his feet, he didn't want Harry Jr. spoiling his new setup. There would be a bit of explaining to do to Lizzie if she found out that Harry had indeed been married before and had a stepson. Harry Sr. told Harry Jr. that he had no time to spare that afternoon, but that he would love to catch up the following evening. Young Harry turned up for their meeting as arranged the next afternoon, but his stepfather was a no-show. Around eight months after Harry and Lizzie had wed, Lizzie missed her period. When, a month later, it didn't arrive again, she assumed she was expecting a baby. After all, she and Harry had had a passionate love life and had never used contraception. Lizzie prepared a romantic candlelit dinner to break the news to Harry, who she assumed would be over the moon to finally become a father. When her new husband looked perplexed rather than delighted by the news, Lizzie was disappointed, but she was so thrilled to be expecting a baby at the age of 51 that nothing much could dampen her spirits. Other things started happening to her body at the same time as her period stopped. She put on weight, felt her sex drive fall away, and experienced warm flushes. She put all those symptoms down to the pregnancy hormones coursing through her veins. Harry, in the meantime, knew there was no way Lizzie could be pregnant. He kept his thoughts to himself. Someone not keeping his thoughts to himself, however, was Harry Jr. Since his mother had disappeared from his life, the teenager had lived with Mrs. Bombelli and then with Mrs. Bombelli's grown-up son, Frank. Like his mother, Frank Bombelli was also in the know about Harry Crawford's sexuality and in April 1920, not long after Harry Jr. had been stood up by his stepfather at the pub, Frank decided it was time he knew the truth about Harry Crawford. Harry Jr. was gobsmacked by the revelation. Thinking back to the months before his mother's disappearance, he began putting two and two together. 
He thought about how Annie had abandoned her marital bed and started sleeping in the spare bed in his room, and how the relationship between his mother and stepfather had become very strained. He remembered Harry asking him to read out loud the story about the unidentified body in the park, and he realised in the same moment that Harry had most likely murdered his mother. Harry Jr. immediately went to visit his Aunt Lily, Annie's estranged sister. Because the two sisters had fallen out, Lily had no idea that Annie had been missing for two and a half years. When Harry Jr. told his aunt that Harry Crawford was really a woman, Lily remembered Annie whispering to her that Harry was not a man. Lily, too, came to the conclusion that Harry must have killed Annie. Soon after, Harry Jr. and Lily reported Annie's disappearance to the police and told the interviewing officer, Detective Sergeant Stuart Robson, what they'd been told about Harry's true identity. The detective did some research and found the documentation and exhibits relating to the remains found at Lane Cove River Park two and a half years earlier. He then called Harry Jr. and Lily back into the station and showed them the enamel cup and the jewellery and shoes that had been found with the body. Harry Jr. immediately recognised the shoes as being the same style as the pair his mother wore and he remembered his stepfather mending them not long before she vanished. Lily recognised the kidney-shaped greenstone pendant as a piece of jewellery that Annie owned. On Monday the 5th of July 1920, at around 11.30 in the morning, two ununiformed policemen walked into the hotel where Harry was working and took him for questioning to the central police station. At the station, Harry made a statement that his name was, and always had been, Harry Leo Crawford, that he was born in Scotland and that he'd always been a single man until he married Lizzie a year earlier. But after a medical examination confirmed the story that Annie Burkett's son had told them, his world began to disintegrate. One of the detectives then showed Harry Jr. into the room. He confirmed that Harry was the man who'd been married to his mother before turning heel and walking out without acknowledging his former stepfather. That afternoon, the two detectives took Harry to the house he shared with Lizzie. When Lizzie answered the door, they told her they were investigating a murder and marched Harry in to the master bedroom. Harry watched in horror as the officers searched his room. When they opened the leather portmanteau in the corner and found the small cloth bag in the bottom, he blurted out, Don't let the wife see it. Instead, one of the detectives plunged his hand into the bag and pulled out the lovemaking implement that Harry had so carefully fashioned years beforehand. Lizzie had no idea what had taken place inside the bedroom and later that day she arrived at the police station asking to speak to her husband. The officer at the front desk replied, I'm afraid you are in for a terrible shock. The person you married can't be your husband. Lizzie replied, you mean, he's a bigamist? No, said the officer. The person we have locked up under the name of Harry Crawford is a woman. Lizzie was outraged. How can you say he's a woman, she said. I'm his wife. He is my dear and loving husband. The officer replied, Your husband has been examined by the government medical officer, and he is definitely a woman. Lizzie stood her ground and demanded to see Harry, but Harry refused to see her. I can't possibly speak to her right now, he told the officers. Please tell her that I love her. I don't want her to see me like this. Trying to make Lizzie understand how Harry had duped her, one of the officers placed the cloth bag in his hand and held it out so she could see what was inside. Lizzie left the station in confusion. It wasn't possible that Harry had used that device on her, she reasoned, because she was several months pregnant. Later that afternoon, police photographs were taken and Harry was charged under his female name of Eugenia Fellini with the murder of Annie Burkett. 
A week later, still believing there'd been some dreadful mistake, Lizzie went to the doctor. The doctor informed her that she was not expecting a baby at all, and that she was, instead, going through menopause. 24 hours later, Lizzie had packed up all her things and she'd left town. Harry never saw or heard from her again, and when the police tried to serve her with a subpoena to be a witness in court, she was nowhere to be found. Just over two weeks after Harry was arrested, Annie was exhumed from her pauper's grave for forensic examination. Unlike the first autopsy, where the coroner found there was inconclusive evidence of foul play, the doctors concluded this time that there was definite evidence that Annie had suffered a blow to the head, but that she'd most likely died from being burned while unconscious. The police labelled Eugenia's case the man-woman case, and the newspapers adopted the name with relish. After one of her early appearances in court, the Sun newspaper reported... The accused woman was strangely interesting. She bore an extraordinary resemblance to a man, for facially she is masculine, and she wore a man's clothes. In the dock she appeared distinctly nervous. With her left hand she wears a gold band ring on the little finger. She fiddled with the dock rail. In her right hand she carried a grey felt hat. Her hair is almost black, clipped short of course, and neatly brushed. Her head and face are remarkably small. The face, particularly around the mouth, is considerably wrinkled and suggests that she is older than her stated age, 45. Her complexion is sallow and her small eyes are brown. The strange woman's clothing consisted of a well-worn dark grey cloth sack suit, a white tennis shirt and neatly tied green Broadway tie. Her well-polished boots seemed about size 6 and were of patent leather with dull uppers. All the newspapers printed the sensational police photographs of Eugenia in which she was dressed confidently as a man but possessed the haunted eyes of someone whose worst fears had come true. Amid a media frenzy that Australia had seldom, if ever, seen before, Eugenia Fellini's trial began on October 5, 1920, exactly three months to the day after she was arrested. Not every wrong has a right. Eugenia pleaded not guilty to murdering Annie, but once all the evidence for the prosecution and defence had been presented, the jury took just two hours to pronounce her guilty and she was sentenced to death. Her sentence was later commuted to life in prison. Eugenia was sent to serve out her sentence at the Long Bay Women's Prison. She was surprised to find that in prison, no one batted an eyelid at her reputation for living as a man. Two years into her prison term, Eugenia changed her name to Jean. Possibly because in prison, like everywhere else, she encountered an ingrained racism towards Italians. Then, three years into her sentence, her daughter Josephine died suddenly of tuberculosis. She was 27 years old and left behind her husband, Arthur Whitby, and a three-year-old daughter called Rita, Jean's only grandchild. Jean was not allowed to attend her daughter's funeral, and despite the lack of maternal or paternal love she showed to Josephine throughout her life, she experienced a profound depression that lasted for months. As the years rolled on, she was considered a model prisoner, and in 1929, nine years after being found guilty of Annie Burkett's murder, a group of Sydney women rallied for Jean's release on the grounds that her treatment in the justice system had been unfair and discriminatory. On February 18, 1931, Jean Fellini was released from prison on several conditions, including that she be of, quote, good behaviour, unquote. Jean knew that this meant she would never be able to adopt a male persona again. And it soon became obvious that while she kept the surname Fellini, she would never be able to live a normal life. 
As soon as anyone overheard her say her name, people would begin whispering behind her back, and once, after giving her name to a shop assistant, a mother quickly pulled her children close and marched them out of the premises. Instead, she adopted the surname Ford, and after that, few people recognised her as the notorious man-woman murderer. For the next few years, Jean Ford became successful at buying run-down boarding houses, building them up and selling them on for a profit. She never again dressed as a man in public, although when she was at home alone, she would get about in a man's housecoat, and she continued to keep her hair cut short. Her life was more settled than it had ever been, and although she would rather not have had to deny the dominant male part of herself, she found an equilibrium. By mid-1938, Jean Ford was 62 years old, and she'd worked out that if she kept up her success as a boarding house developer, in five years or so, she would have saved up enough money to buy a small freehold abode and live out the rest of her days with dignity. As it turned out, she wouldn't need it. On June the 9th that year, on her way to the bank, she stepped out onto Oxford Street in Paddington, straight into the path of a car. She died in hospital the following day, without ever regaining consciousness. Wow, what a life. You've been listening to The Lip. I'm Megan McChesney. If you want to know more about Eugenia Fellini, I highly recommend the books Eugenia by Mark Tedeschi and Eugenia, a Man by Suzanne Faulkner and also Pip Smith's fictionalised account, Half Wild. References to these books are in the show notes at thelippodcast.kiwi. Also on the website, again, thelippodcast.kiwi, are a number of photographs of Eugenia. Before I go, I'd like to take a moment to say hi to a few people who've been shouting out about The Lip. I really appreciate it when listeners take the time to spread the word, so here's a big thanks to Taryn Boyd, Tony Lashon, Anna Ricci, Katie Shaparo, Dave Alcock, Josie Bentley, Christine Croft, Bridie Pico, Christina Norland, Robin Richards, Jan Nason, Renee Otmar, Josie Terry, Crystal Workman, Kayla Arnold, Barbara Higgins, Daryl Mayer, Jennifer Mercer, Carly Sills, Pamela Newton, Tammy Underwood, Danielle Smith, Christina Noor, and Megan Norsworthy. Sorry if I pronounced any names wrong, and if you've been spreading the word about the lip and I haven't named you, please be assured I really do appreciate your support, and I haven't left you out on purpose. I would love to know about it so do feel free to drop me a message on The Lip's Facebook page. If you're new to The Lip, you can check out all the other episodes on the website, thelippodcast.kiwi. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. I think that's it for me. See you soon.